Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Mark Cotter, founder and CEO of BitBio. Hi, Grant. Thank you so much for inviting me to that podcast. I didn't want to, uh, you know, insert myself into your <laughs> your introduction, but I guess as a matter of uh, conflict of interest disclosure, of course, I'm, I'm head of bioinformatics at BitBio, so <laughs> I'm not an, an impartial party here. I'm so uh, excited about what your team's building and how it's contributing to BitBio. It's the bit in BitBio, so thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I, I just I just stay out of the way and let them do their work. <laughs> That's a good proposition. Something that great. We, uh, so, can you tell us about BitBio? Yeah, of course. So, BitBio is a synthetic biology company, and we're focused on human cells. And what you can do with these cells is you can either use them for your research purposes or to create new drugs, or you can also use this technology for cell therapies. What's so special about the technology? It's really the approach plus the technology that differentiates us from, from other companies that also are creating human cells. The way that we differentiate ourselves is that we really look at cells like hardware, like they are computers. So for us, the cell has a nucleus that contains the DNA, and the DNA is a bit like the hard drive. So all the information is stored. It's actually read-only memory. And then within a cell, only part of that operating system, part of these programs that are stored on the DNA level are actually active. And these, this is structured in what's called gene regulatory networks, and these are the sub-programs in the cell. The genes that control these programs are called transcription factors. So what we do is we activate these transcription factors to instruct the cells and obtain certain functions. And what you can do is you can take this approach and you can literally program a stem cell to become the cell type that you're interested in. And this is 10 times faster, and we can do it with extreme precision, and it's very, very scalable. So what, what's the big advancement over where the field has been previously? I mean, stem cell biology and the, the concept of embryology has really sort of gone and made huge advances uh, over the last 20, 30 years. We have identified at the beginning of this field, that the stem cell that's responsible for generating the entire embryo, all the organ systems, all the cells uh, in, in a growing organism. And the idea was that if we could replicate this somehow, if we could use the tools of biology to recapitulate this development, we could, we could get to every cell type and we would have a source of cells that we could use for research, obviously, but also for regenerative medicine. And there's been some huge advances in this field and also some early applications. But if we're honest, we really didn't move this very far. I mean, it sort of got stuck somehow in the process. At this point in time, we don't have stem cell-derived products in the clinic. And the reason why is because it's very, very difficult to get these stem cells to do what you want them to do. And then another area opened up, which I would call synthetic biology. Uh, and that really goes back to the 1980s, uh, when ben Weintraub, Lassar, and Davies, um, in the heydays of molecular biology, discovered a gene that they named, and they called it MyoD. And, and their observation was, if you activate this gene in a cell, it turns into muscle, like magic. And of course, nobody, you know, expected that. And that, you know, a single gene could turn on a new cell type. 
But then in 2007, 2006 and 2007, something really even bigger happened. Shinya Yamanaka discovered that you can use four transcription factors. And if you activate them, then you can take pretty much any cell of your body back into a stem cell stage. So it gives you essentially everyone a source of stem cells. And what that means is access to, in principle, to all the cells in your body in the culture dish. And that was the second time around um, that someone showed that gene combinations dictate the identity of a cell. And then, of course, others like Marius Wernick took up this idea and they showed that this is probably a generalizable principle. So Marius did amazing things like taking a skin cell and turning them into brain cell. He also took a liver cell and turned it into a brain cell. I'm not sure how useful this is, but it really sort of shook the foundation of what we knew about cell biology, the identity, what makes a cell a cell, uh, and stem cell biology. So this is cell reprogramming and this is synthetic biology. And so we're very excited to bring this into company setting and an industrial process. What we were able to do is create a technology that allows you to very precisely control these transcription factors. What we can do with that is we can instruct cells so they have no, no alternative. And of course, if you have that sort of level of control, then you have the foundation of an industrial process that is very scalable, and it can open up, hopefully, all these things that people were dreaming of, you know, better cells to understand your biology, cells that allow you to actually study human disease and, and create better drugs or make it easier for drugs to be developed and actually be successful, which is a big bottleneck, as you know, Kwan. And of course, the new generation of drugs are cells by themselves. And they are so powerful because they can react to the environment. And we're very excited about that. So it's amazing to be able to differentiate cells that are very much like what we ordinarily have in the body. How excited are you about, you know, cells that may have characteristics from different types, cells that may have synthetic circuits engineered in them and so on? How far do you think that that kind of thing can take us? So this brings us back to the question, what is actually, how is a cell defined? And there's maybe two theoretical concepts. You could say, okay, within our DNA, a cell is defined as a whole package and you can't do anything about it. It's, it's what it is. It's like a blueprint. This is one cell type, which is a mirror, and then the other cell type has a completely different information content. Or the alternative hypothesis is that a cell is really not much more than the parts, the individual sub-programs that are active in, in any given time. Actually, Weintraub and Lassa already in the 1980s looked at this a bit and said, you know, can we combine traits of different cells so they, they and they showed that they can create cells that have a bit of a muscle phenotype that behave a bit like muscles they're also a bit like neurons uh, like brain cells and they also did that in the nanocytes and combined that so these are the pigment cells of your skin and also you know did sorts of create some hybrid cells there and i also had a very talented phd student in my lab who did some experiments combining macrophages with brain cells. And she showed that that's also possible. You can create cells that have this sort of dual identity. And so what we've learned from that is really, again, we have to refine the concept of what makes a cell. And we really think, I'm at the point where I'm really thinking it's just the information, the 
program that's active. And you can puzzle it together and you can combine it as certain combinations aren't possible or not. And then, of course, you can think about cells that have you know, a combination of functions that you may want for a therapeutic application that don't really exist in the human body. And I think that's very exciting. It's very science fiction, but it's very exciting. You could go even further, as you said, you could create logic gates, you can sort of gate their function in constraints. Uh, and I think that might be very interesting and helpful. And potentially you can even import functions that don't exist in human cells. So I think there's a lot we can discover. It's just like endless opportunities of engineering. But let's be realistic right now. I think we have a huge amount to do to actually recreate some of the cells that actually exist in our human body. And that's really the focus uh, right now. What areas do you think will be impacted first by this technology? So speaking from our own experience in BitBio, there's always this huge ambition of creating software. And we're working on it. But it's also, you know, think about the regulatory hurdles, the quality of the cells that you have to have, the clinical and preclinical studies, etc. That's, of course, a huge endeavor. In BitBio, we decided to look at another alternative application initially, which is really providing these cells for drug discovery. If you think about Alzheimer drugs, they have been very successful, <laughs> let's say, in the past. So drug companies are extremely good at creating a drug to a specific biological problem. But really, the biology is the thing that they need to get right so that the process actually is, is running and providing the output of the drug that you desire. And here's the matter. Mice don't get Alzheimer's. So what people do is they create something in the mouse that looks a bit like Alzheimer's, which it isn't. It's a different thing. It's something that humans create. It has certain features. And then they use this model, and then they create drugs to treat this model. But because the thing that they've created in mouse isn't real Alzheimer, the drug then fails in the clinical trial. And there's other reasons as well. Sometimes, you know, uh, it's just toxic. You know, mice can tolerate other things than human do. This is a bit of a recurring theme on this podcast. There's an industry-wide reluctance to move forward without rodent data, even when it's so widely recognized that the translatability is nil. There's some papers that make very strong statements about the correlation of animal models and not. But I don't want to at all argue against the animal model. At some point, you probably need to understand how biology works in the context of an entire organism. But in order to fix that translation gap, I think you need to start with the actual condition in the actual cell that is actually sort of human. And, and I think that's what we're really excited about, being able to create these cells for big pharma companies that have ambitious programs to develop a next generation of medicines and enable them to do this in the real human cell, in the right real human cells. I think it's extremely exciting. So BitBio didn't start out as BitBio. Can you tell us about the origins and what prompted you to start what was to become BitBio? So that brings me back to a personal experience. I'm a lost mathematician. Let's start at the beginning. I sort of did a year of maths and, it, uh, and then had prices. You know, said, hey, I need to do something that somehow contributes to something in this world. And, and I was not aware how great <laughs> mathematics can contribute. So I, I decided to go into medicine. And then, of course, strong to the how and research and medicine. 
this led to some very early encounters. So before I decided to go to medicine, I sort of tried it out. Uh, I became a healthcare assistant for, for a six-month period. And I worked with people with spinal cord injuries. And I just saw, you know, how that condition changed their lives. And I just felt that nothing, something has to be done. One needs to push this forward. This is really something that needs to change. Turns out this is an extremely difficult problem. And I think we're not very close to a cure. I think there are much easier problems to solve. But that sort of set me up and really defined my career. Not consciously, so I didn't have this picture in my mind. But I ended up as a neurosurgeon that looks after spinal cord injury patients who went to research and to discover regenerative processes in the brain and in the spinal cord. Hit those limitations of stem cell biology that we discussed before, tried to find another way, followed the footsteps of giants. And that had this ex extreme luck to identify a technology that allows you to really exert, I would say, supreme control over cells. It's like a control system or an enter button to the operating system uh, of a cell. And that then sparked and, uh, and it became first a hopeful project so we called the company after the big goddess of hope, Alpis. And then when it got legs, when we saw that actually it's not only fanciful, but actually real, uh, we decided to call it what it is, really the merger of data science and biology. And this is how, you know, BitBio came about. What are your long-term ambitions with BitBio? So if you think um, what human cells can do, fundamentally change medicine in the form of cell therapies, and we already saw this. I always say that the, the brother Wright flight in cell, in, in cell therapy were CAR-Ts. So they were really sort of products that were extremely expensive, not very scalable, very, I would say, crude at, at the beginning, often with a lot of side effects. But what they taught us is that cancers that had no hope of surviving suddenly were cured. Nobody expected this. This is a real revolution. Why is this the case? Because cells are not drugs, like small molecules or biologics. And they interact with the environment. And then they instruct other cells to do certain things. And, and they can mount an immune response. And they wipe out this cancer. And if you think a bit further, think about Parkinson's. Think, think about other conditions, diabetes, where cells are lost. And the only way to really fix this is to really somehow replace these cells. And you can see how powerful this is. And as a medic, seeing that hope, seeing that limb, see, seeing actually this progress is just a huge, uh, uh, you know, driver of ambition. And then that hopefully has translated into BitBio. And everyone in BitBio is really excited about the opportunity ahead, you know, enabling something that, that hasn't been there before. But not only sort of our own progress in cell therapy, but also even as we as we discussed the application of cells to enable better research and better drug discovery. What do you think are the biggest challenges that the field has to overcome? The biggest challenges in cell therapy is really manufacturing scale with precision and high product uh, definition. And this is really what's the biggest bottleneck for the application of stem cell biology. And it's a huge task. I do think that the approach that we have provides a real unique opportunity to overcome some of these challenges. And we were able to demonstrate this 
So for example, our two cell products that we have uh, released into the market, one of them is a human brain cell, glutamatergic neuron, and the other one is the human muscle cell. And there are, of course, more, more to come. But these are the first products that are consistent and scalable enough for high throughput screening, which is the process that drug companies use to create new drugs. And that's a major step. So we're very excited and hope that we can translate this into a clinical product as well. Going way, way back, maybe to, you know, childhood, <laughs> what do you think influenced you and shaped you? You know, what made you Mark Cotter? I think one thing that you already sort of glanced from my accent is that I don't think I have a locality. I was born in Canada uh, and I was raised in Austria and Germany. I had the pleasure to live in Australia and my parents tried to make me comfortable with speaking foreign languages. And I think that's one aspect I would say that has, you know, shaped my thinking and the necessity to move around places and adapt, I think was the other thing that really influenced me. So new cultures, new locations mean people act differently, think differently. And I had to reinvent myself a few times. And another reason I think is because I, I have a certain handicap. I think you would now call it dyslexia. And this is like someone throws a huge spanner into your, into your brain. And it means that you have to deal with things that others don't, don't even encounter. Uh, and it's hard. Uh, and you have to sort of iterate around it. You have to sort of figure out how you think around this problem. So I started to, I think, program my, my mind away from languages more to maths. Music and maths were sort of my, I think these are probably my biggest talents or were my biggest talents, they're not now. <laughs> so I, I, I was then, I entered national selection for maths and special programs uh, in Germany. And I really, really enjoyed this. But then came the stage where I felt, what am I doing with this? And I didn't really realize at that point in time how powerful maths can be. And I had this idea of, you know, I love what I'm doing. I love all these problems, but I don't see a reason why I should pursue this. And that made me go into the thing that I really would be the last on my list, <laughs> which, which was medicine. But uh, it sort of kind of made sense to me because I thought this is something, you know, if all goes to port. That's something that is that makes sense, you know, helping others, serving others. I can live with that. But what it also meant was I had to learn a complete language. So medicine, in a, uh, to a large extent, is a language. Uh, it's words that you use to describe biology and disease. And it was fabulously difficult for, for me to, to memorize stuff uh, because I inherently was programmed to sort of think in causal relationships and cause-effect relationships and not lateral, so synthesize information. And, and I managed. Uh, over time, got better there. And then I had this battle between medicine and music. Should I sort of end up doing actual music? So I studied music and medicine in parallel. And I guess looking back at this, that uh, just means that I probably had to keep my head plastic. I had to reinvent myself. And I think that's really you know, given me a slightly sort of eccentric perspective on problems, which then allowed us to you know, do things that other people might have not done, you know being very persistent to, to generate this software technology. That was a real huge risk for me. 
I nearly lost my credibility, my academic path, my funding, because people said you're crazy. I've had people saying this is not STEM psychology, you shouldn't be part of the STEM cell institute. But uh, you get a bit feisty over time, and then you start pushing through walls. Even just combining, you know, neurosurgical training with academic work was extremely, un- you know, rare. And I still got accepted in Cambridge, and I had the opportunity to push through these walls. So, how do you manage it all? <laughs> now I think my life's become a lot simpler. You know, I have this incredible opportunity to help facilitate other people to work on an interesting. Problem. And I think scientifically, it's super fundamental. What makes a cell a cell? What cell identity? And the moment you crack it, we have a system that allows you to actually use it for research or other applications. And so my, my job now is really much more to give other people the opportunity to do what they enjoy doing and what sort of aligns with their purpose. And it means, uh, of course, I'm a bit busy, but at the same time, it's really amazing to see how things come together. So I really enjoy that and the creativity. What preparation would you say you found useful in that transition? Going from kind of doing yourself to creating an environment and a structure where others kind of execute on this vision in an orchestrated way. Uh, a certain amount of self-awareness is really helpful. Knowing yourself, I think, and getting to grips with the uh, the good things and not so good things, and then um, the impact that you have on others. I think it's really, really critical for any person that assumes any kind of leadership. And I don't mean management or I don't mean power. It's more about leading and enticing others, stimulating others to join the path that you're on. Uh, and the other thing is having experience in different environments. So I, I know I had a lot of things that I saw, different hospitals, different universities, even different companies. And you experience the culture and you experience how people interact. Uh, and then you have a vision how you don't want to, ha- what you don't want to happen. And then what you would like to happen. But the reality in a startup is that things are so, uh, are moving so, so rapid so that, you know, you create the culture that's right for one moment. And then you transition to a bigger stage and then you have to recreate the culture because it, uh, what happened and what worked in a 30, 40 people company no longer applicable in a company that is a hundred people because information doesn't just flow easily. People don't see each other and they're not in sync. So suddenly you have to think about structures and responsibilities and roles and responsibilities. Uh, and, and that's, I guess, a transition that's been you know, talked about uh, before. But, uh, and it's hard because people have to give up things that they like to do at the beginning. And some people don't like it and others thrive on this. And, and COVID probably hasn't helped. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think COVID has been, you know, I mean, everyone was locked up in the Zoom box. <laughs> we started out with this idea, you know, we have this technology, what can it do? And uh, so how do we use it as uh, so one sort of research question? Really. The second question was, okay, is this really, you know, transferable to other cell types? And then how can we create new cell types? And, and we figured out components, you know, bioinformatics, how important it is, you know, screening. But the areas that were sort of limited or remained, um, let's say artisanal, for a longer time. It's only recently, only this year that 
we have identified structures and patterns that allow you to really create a cell with high efficiency. And I never thought that we could really processorize this part because I thought, you know, I mean, that's sort of the, the bit of biology that can't be structured. But I was, I was taught wrong. We've got this incredibly talented scientist who essentially showed us a way of actually how to do this efficiently and, and allowed us to design processes. What advice would you have for other biotech entrepreneurs? So the first thing that you need to do is come to a clear visualization, I would say, of what it is that you want to create. And that's extremely hard. And then find a way to communicate. And I still struggle with that. It's extremely difficult. So how can I make people understand that having a human cell is really impactful, creates opportunities that you haven't had before? Often it's like, it's a bit like sculpturing. You start with a, with a stone and you start changing, you create structure, right? You basically discover structure. The second thing that you require, I think, is really that self-consciousness. And, you know, I was the least self-conscious person, you know, when I was in my maths phase. You know, I thought I was extremely clever and, uh, and everyone else wasn't <laughs> and turned out to be wrong, uh, of course. If you have, you know, this sort of distorted view of, of life, learn more about who you are, how others perceive you. I really do think that uh, having a strong moral compass is also very helpful. I think it's very fundamental. And then once you know what you want to do, you will have so many people telling you that you can't do it. Uh, and you just connect with what you think is right. More often than not, you'll be right, but you'll still make some massive mistakes. And then you have to be not shy to sort of acknowledge that you've made a mistake and, and, and change and pivot. And I think that's really, I think that's the other thing. You don't learn when things go right. You learn when things go wrong. You know, it's painful if things go wrong. I mean, it feels awful. And then you just have to pick yourself up and say, hey, I did this. I own this. This was wrong. What can I learn from it? And more often than not, you'll end up at, at a higher level of understanding. You become better at what you do. The ability to rethink yourself, rethink your approach, rethink your context is really important as well. One thing I've noticed is I think you do a really good job of bringing in a team <laughs> players. How do you do that? How do you attract really good people to your vision? I think it starts a bit with the vision. You know, I think it's easier to attract someone to a problem like, hey, it's great new medicines and a more efficient, efficient trading platform. And the other thing that I do uh, is I try and just be myself and honest. I'm going to be very frank with things that I didn't do well. And I try to just be naming the things as they are and then give other people the opportunity to contribute and shape and, and change the, the, the trajectory of the journey that they're on. And I think if people sense that you are well-meaning, honest, and trustworthy, and that you connect them or enable them to pursue something that's close at, uh, at their heart. And you don't shy away from saying, hey, I've done something stupid here. Let's, you know, get together and correct it. I think um, most of the time they'll, they'll forgive you your mistakes and will follow you. And I think that's what, what we've been able to do in Bitbio, you know, get incredibly, incredibly smart people. I mean, the scientists in Bitbio are much much better scientists than I was. And my job now is really just to try and connect things 
you know, getting people to work together. What's something about which you've changed your mind over the last few years? There's so many things I don't even know uh, where to start. I can tell you one thing that I haven't changed my mind about, although I've been pushed to change my mind about very often, is this, this idea of either doing only a therapeutic play, only self-therapy, or having, you know, cells for, for you know, as tools. And for me, it always seemed a bit weird because the only difference is the market and the, and the data package that we wrap around the cell, but the process fundamentally is very similar. Of course, clinical manufacturing is dimensions more difficult than others. Uh, and so that's something I held. But in the science world, one thing that I, that really changed where I was wrong was the, this, this concept of there's areas that can't be captured, where you just need scientific intuition. You're going from a known transcription factor combination or unknown to actual cell that you can grow and produce. I always felt that that's probably the heart, you know, that's where you need intuition. You know, it's more like exploration. And and again, you know, I, I think I've, I've learned that you can actually process this. This is something where the approach and the mentality is, is more important than the skill set, which is extraordinary. I mean, for me, I've, uh, I've never expected this. A, a very young scientist was able to teach, it, I think, us, how to take a cell from a concept to, to a real cell. There's another young scientist, uh, and she was working on a particular cell type. Um, it looked fine, but she, after I think 18 months, she said, I haven't made any progress. Uh, and I just want to you know, step up and say, hey, this project has failed. And, and she did this in town hall, and she said, you know, I've done this and this and that, and I went down about it today, uh, and I just want to show you, and I want to tell you guys, that um, this has happened to me. It wasn't good. It was painful. And then the credibility and, the, and being honest and stepping up and saying, hey, you know, this project didn't go well. And then she started to talk about the learnings, you know. And it's like a miracle this year. As a side project, she just cracked it. Uh, she changed her approach. And within a few weeks, a few months, something that was stuck suddenly it turned into something that worked. And of course it has to do with you know, technical innovation, etc. But but uh, it's that resilience, not giving up, knowing when you go wrong, acknowledging that you go wrong, that something has to change fundamentally and uh, and, and resetting uh, and being open and honest about it. I really think that's incredibly important and powerful in all, at all levels. Yeah. What do you think is the worst piece of advice you've received uh, since starting BitBio. And the advice that was totally wrong at the beginning turns out to be extremely valuable at the stage of the company that we are now. So the advice that I'm sort of referring to is someone said you need to create role profiles. But at the beginning when you have a when you have a sort of four people band, you don't have any roles. And you have no idea what you're doing and how you get to where you need to be. And you, and you think, oh, this person could be this role. And it turns out that's absolutely not their skill set. But first of all, you can't recruit anyone else that has that skill set because you're not in a position to make an offer to a person who has, and because you don't know what you need. Uh, and so at that point in time, that piece of advice wasn't a good piece of advice. But you know, a couple of years later now, it's an incredibly important piece of advice. Because it helps people to understand their role within a larger organization. 
And now, like any company, you know, we're working on the definition of these roles. I guess what I'm saying, don't think I received any bad advice. It's all a matter of timing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't match the circumstances, but I, I often think now about this advice. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess as an insider, you'll always have more information on the company and the stage things are at and so on than, you know, outside advisors who may have a much larger breadth of experience, but may not have as much insight into kind of the applicability of that advice in terms of the stage the company's at. Yeah. And the, and the amazing thing about BitBio, we're recreating something completely new, something that hasn't been there. I mean, the team that we've got is incredible. The people are incredibly skilled. The, the personalities that we have in BitBio, you know, really handpicked individuals that are fundamentally collaborative, kind, purposeful, ambitious in the right sense, and empirical. And I think it's the biggest and strongest team that I've ever seen. And what they were able to do is really to do something that's never been there before. You know, I mean, we have more cells in our company than any other company I know of, more different cell types more cell types than, you know, the entire stem cell institute in Cambridge, which have been working on this for 20 years, plus the speed at which we can innovate, the complexity of biology and, uh, and approaches is second to no other institution I know. I think the commercial capabilities, the interest that we were able to spark at that very early point in time is, is extraordinary. So I think when things come together in the right way, you you know, you can create such a powerful team and such an incredible force that uh, I think that's the most exciting thing at the moment for me, to be honest, seeing how this thing is crystallizing and it's actually creating cells that are really valuable. We know, for example, that the first screens are going to take place very soon with our cells and I can't wait to, uh, to hear some, you know, some of the results. So this would be very large, billions of cells going into screening systems, etc. So these are major feats. And knowing that we're you know, probably maybe the only company that can deliver this. I mean, this is incredibly exciting. And also exciting to see the investors that we have, uh, the backing that we, that we have received to facilitate our growth, etc. It's thrilling. It's really interesting because, you know, in a way it feels like we're looping back to music uh, because you change a few words in there and you could be talking about improvisation, you know? <laughs> I guess an orchestra is very similar, isn't it? It has to listen to what other people do and they need to be synchronized. Um, it's better if they have the same score sheet. <laughs> it's better when they play the same tune. Yeah. I mean, when human beings come together and come to, together in the right way with the right purpose, I think magic can happen. I certainly see a lot of magic in the Well, thank you so much. I, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Grant.